I'm with Isabel McDonald, uh, who is a uh, academic and also researcher and writer, uh, who has published a um, pretty extensive uh, piece on The Intercept looking at uh, displacement camps in Haiti um, post-2010 earthquake and the ways in which um, international organizations and also governments are reading statistics and what that means in regards to uh, the health, welfare, and survival of um, people on the ground, Haitians who uh, are struggling to survive, many, many thousands still in displacement camps. This is 2019. This is nine years, coming up to 10 years after the uh, really significant earthquake that took place. So first of all, I'll just say hi. Hey. Hi, Stefan, hey. and hello to all the listeners at CQT. Great. Um, thanks for being with us. So this article, um, you were in Haiti to work on it. Um, can you just maybe just give us an outline about it? Yeah. Yeah. So the the sort of context in which I was doing this article was um, the research was also supported by um, Type Investigations, which is a nonprofit organization based in New York that supports investigative reporting. The research that I did for this article really built on um, some uh, several months of field work that I did in Haiti in 2013 mm -hmm. for my PhD thesis, and I was spending a lot of time in this one camp where there had been yeah you know, there were tens of thousands of thousands of Haitians who had taken refuge in this particular camp on what had been a luxury golf course. And one of the women that I met in this camp mm -hmm. had a daughter who was herself the mother of five children who had died um, a couple of years before. This was 2013. Her daughter, her daughter had died in 2012. This was about a year after most basic humanitarian um, services, what existed in the camp, had been cut off as part of a strategy to close the camps. And her daughter had died partly of factors related to malnutrition. She had been anemic before um, the earthquake, which destroyed her family's home. She was breastfeeding her youngest, her youngest child. Um, and so I was talking to the mother of this woman who was about, I think she was about 40, mm -hmm. about, you know, and who was explaining like how her daughter had come to become very ill in the in the camp. They brought her to hospital. The doctor had said, um, "You're, you know, basically your daughter has a heart condition. She is going to need like there was the anemia problem, but also she has a heart condition. She just needs to be somewhere where she can rest and be very peaceful." Um, and her mother was just like how can I find her a peaceful place to rest if we live in a fucking cat tent camp, right? Her daughter had then died. I mean, entirely preventable death if she had been living in a normal house. Her family is certain she would not have died. I um, then, you know, this story haunted me. Um, mm -hmm. About a week later, there was another young woman who died in the camp. And again, malnutrition seemed to be a factor. And we have to remember, basic aid was cut off. Like in, in this camp, this camp had more humanitarian aid than most camps in Haiti. And it, because it had a, an organization, an NGO that formally managed it for almost four years, which was a highly unusual situation. 
um, people had received some peas once, some rice once, some cooking oil. That was it. They'd been there for over three years when I met, when I, when I was doing my field work there. So it seemed from, and from talking to other people, I was saying, this is terrible that people are dying in the camp. People like knew other people who died in the camp as well. Mm -hmm. Um, I had been seeing statistics produced by an organization called the International Organization for Migration, which was the, the lead organization in this international system that was mm -hmm. doing work in camps um, that was called the Camp Coordination and Camp Management Cluster of the United Nations. So they would have meetings, regular meetings, where um, the question of what to do with the camp populations would be discussed. Um, they were also considered the camp manager of last resort. So in camps that didn't have an NGO, which was formally managing them, the IOM, the International Organization for Migration, was considered the camp manager of last resort. And um, they had been producing these statistics that were being cited everywhere in the media by all governments, by other international organizations, by NGOs, on the number of people living in camps. When we hear about how there were 1.5 million Haitians who were living in camps after the earthquake, this is where the statistics come from. It's the International Organization for Migration. They started counting the population of camps um, in the immediate aftermath of the earthquake. And they counted more than um, 1.5 million people living in these camps. And by the time I was doing my field work, they had been there. Had, they had been putting out all these press releases saying there is a significant decrease in the number of Haitians living in camps. Um, and a lot of organizations were citing this as evidence of progress. The IOM itself had talked about these statistics as evidence that many displaced Haitians are now getting on with their lives. Um, by that time, by 2013, the camp population was less than half of what it had been initially. Um, and to me, it seemed that this would be the organization, if we wanted to know how many other people have died, this would be the organization that would know. Um, so I set up an interview with um, a data analyst at the IOM as part of my thesis research. Mm -hmm. And I sat down at, you know, in a conference room at the IOM headquarters, quite close to the in US Haiti? embassy in Tabar, Haiti, yet yeah, okay. sort of a suburb of Port-au-Prince where the US embassy is mm -hmm. located as well. And I quite, you know, I, I explained, that, okay, so I've met people who have relatives who died in a camp. Um, and I'm wondering, how do you, what kind of records are you keeping of these deaths and how many, because I want to find out how many other people have died. And this data analyst at the IOM who was involved in producing these statistics okay. that yeah. the IOM itself had been referring to as a sign of progress, she explained to me that they kept no records of deaths in camps. 
And I was taken aback initially. I kept trying to ask, well, if you're, because I knew from talking to people who lived in, who lived in a camp that the IOM had given everybody an ID card. Um, oh, every wow. family had a, a kind of ID card wow. identifying them as internally displaced people. Wow. And on that card, it wasn't every individual, but it was every head of household was given one. Okay. So the, the woman that I had met whose daughter died, whose daughter, who was the mother of five children, her her daughter had been part, who had been considered part of... Um, part of her mom's household, as had her children. And so on their card, it said, set mun na femi, okay? Seven people in the family on her mother's identification, sure, displaced sure. identification yeah. card. And her mother had then said, like, what she told me was then the IOM came back to re-register the camp. And she explained, my daughter has died. So then they were only six people in the family. She had said this to the IOM. They had given her a new card that said six people. Mm -hmm. And so the question to me was, you have such detailed information. They also had phone numbers for every family that they registered as internally displaced people. So I... I, I came, you know, I kept asking this data analyst at the IOM who'd been involved in producing these statistics and involved in this registration process, how is it that you're not collecting information on deaths? And what she said was, I wouldn't even see it as being the IOM's role to track deaths. We're here to provide assistance to living people so the you know this is like it's not it's sort of beyond the scope mm-hmm. of our of our mandate but then she said something else that was basically cuz she had, she was somebody who had previously worked in nutrition programs in the humanitarian sector where mortality rates are actually an important uh, an important measure of, of course, whether yeah. programs are working but she said here with IDPs um we the indicator is, so an indicator is like a, a, a quantitative measure of assessment that you, that you, you, you find this, you, it's using, a, using it. numbers to assess progress, yeah. to assess whether a program is working. So you have the evidence based on numbers and you look at what, what is working. Mm-hmm. So in nutrition programs, deaths of the people who are supposed to be your beneficiaries would be seen as a pro- would be seen as like sure. an important variable that you look at to say okay yeah. something's not working right but in this context this was not the measure of assessment that it was used but what was to, to me even more striking was that she said here the indicator is decrease of people in camps mm-hmm. cuz that's sort of the driving force of like the motivation of the work that's taking place i mean for the uh, International Organization of Migration subsidiary, basically in Haiti, they're wanting to see the numbers decrease. So for them, these deaths are not a problem. It was it was that the deaths were not even considered. Mm-hmm. She actually seemed completely surprised when I brought up the question of deaths, and she said, "There's this is the first time." This was 2013. Mm-hmm. There are a lot of people who died, I'm sure, between you know of this between the time they started counting and then. And she said, this is the first time 
I've heard this question even brought up. Well, the earthquake is in 2010, so that's three years afterwards. Three yeah, years okay. afterwards, yeah. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Right. and two years after basic humanitarian services in the camps, what existed, which was very minimal, were cut off as part of the strategy of closing camps. So it was also that there was a denial of humanitarian aid in the camps as part of the strategy of closing camps. And then they assessed the progress of those programs by counting decreases of people, but they didn't count deaths. So this is... um, So this is where the statistics that I cite in the Intercept article that the Trump administration has been citing in its ongoing campaign to try to terminate a protected immigration status for which a lot of Haitians who had been living in the U.S. prior to the earthquake Mm -hmm. or who arrived before 2011 became eligible after the earthquakes. This was a a program called Temporary Protected Status that was that has Haiti was designated for this protected status that protects people who are not don't have any other immigration status are not u.s citizens who are living in the u.s who are nationals of a country that the u.s government considers is too dangerous to send people back to because of temporary and extraordinary conditions and so after the earthquake haiti was deemed to fit that criteria and um since 2010, since this this um, temporary protected status TPS designation was introduced yeah. for Haiti right yeah. after the earthquake, there are 59,000 Haitians who have been able to live and work legally in the U.S. as TPS recipients. Wow. Okay. And when Trump came into office as part of his anti-immigrant agenda, he has been terminating temporary protected status for every group that he can, it seems. And Haitians are one of those groups, um, along with Salvadorans, Hondurans. Um, And there has, so in 2017, the Trump administration terminated um, temporary protected status for Haiti. And, um, when it did that, it cited these statistics produced by the International Organization for Migration, um, mm-hmm. in which I already had found out they are not counting deaths. Mm-hmm. They sound, cited those statistics saying that that was, that was evidence that there was significant progress in Haiti, yeah, and yeah, thus yeah. that the country was now safe to deport these Haitians who had been living in many cases for more than a decade in the U.S., who had U.S. citizen children, um, to Haiti. Now, this has actually been blocked in the courts, um, and there are now five ongoing lawsuits Mm -hmm. challenging this decision. Mm -hmm. So the Trump administration has actually not been able to move forward with this plan to, to, um, to terminate TPS for Haitians, even though that was a decision it made back in 2017. Um, the, by the latest, the latest, um, the latest revision it has been forced to to make to this timetable mm-hmm. is that it will only be in 2021 that TPS will expire for Haitians. Um, and we don't know what is going to happen in the courts in the meantime because this sure. is like the they they've, they've had to renew it a couple of times already. 
So this is yeah. this is so for now this threat of that had been you know that has been very, had been very imminent mm. has been kind of deferred for Haitians yeah. um, who were who were granted this protected immigration status in the U.S. Um, but here in Canada mm. we actually we actually have this this um, very paradoxical situation where a lot of Haitians who had fled to Canada, um, and particularly around around here where CQT li- listeners are living, right, around Montreal, um, are now in a much more precarious situation than Haitian TPS recipients, where there have been, there's been a huge mobilization, all these court cases. Um, but here in Canada, our government quietly lifted the moratorium on deportations to Haiti back in 2014. Um, and so this has meant that people who are coming um, to Canada yeah. seeking asylum since Trump came into office have, are now facing deportation. And there has been, there ha, we know that there have, been, there have been hundreds of deportations to Haiti since the moratorium was lifted. Mm-hmm. And we also know that um, although the government has put in place an administrative deferral of removals, so they are not actively deporting pe- people who do not have... Um, any kind of a criminal record, because that's sort of another, a whole other a whole other story. Is people who are criminalized have been deported regardless of of these administrative deferral of removals. Sure. But um, for but a lot of Haitians living in Canada now are protected from being deported um, tomorrow, perhaps. But this administrative deferral of removals can be lifted at any time. Yeah, sure unlike TPS in the U.S. So paradoxically, people who have come to Canada seeking asylum from this um, anti-immigrant Trump administration are actually in a situation where they are, they are more vulnerable than they would have been right. had they remained in the U.S. In the case of people who actually had a temporary, had TPS, which is also in some ways a quite restricted group. But, but nonetheless, we're, the Canadian government is doing precisely what... The Trump administration is has been has been blocked from doing. Sure, sure. So I guess just to underline this fact that on the ground in Haiti, there is, you know, and you see it from many different major NGOs that have done work in Haiti. Uh, billions of dollars was raised for this work, whether it's the Red Cross, whether it's um, the Clinton Foundation, whether it's. Um, Habitat for Humanity, Médecins Sans Frontières, all these groups have been raising a lot of money for work in Haiti, especially since the earthquake in 2010. Um, And thank you for underlining this point about the statistics from these sort of conglomeration of groups within the International Organization on Migration, IOM, about this. But can you just underline again, like, that sort of contrast between the the health and well-being of Haitians in displacement camps and like the work that would be necessary to address the social economic well-being of people in the camps versus the push from international NGO world to see these numbers de- decreasing that sort of being maybe not the profit line but sort of like the administrative drive of these organizations can you can you um shape that a bit more 
Yeah. So, I mean, it's there. It's true that there has the statistics that the Trump administration was citing um, are based on data from 2016, um, where the IOM counted a 96% decrease in the number of Haitians living in camps for internally displaced people. But what has actually happened on the ground is that very little housing has been rebuilt. Mm -hmm. There were um, an estimated more than 300,000 homes that that were destroyed in the earthquake, each home I mean, Haitian families are often quite large. So this is, sure. you know, the, the scale of displacement is a lot of people have cited a figure as high as 2.3 million people who were displaced. Um, the number of so the number of Haitians living in camps was never necessarily the full scale of the crisis of, of displacement. Yeah. Um, but what has what has happened that is that because very little housing has yeah. been rebuilt and the price of rent um, has risen considerably since the earthquake, people are, have, been, have been sort of forced to go, a lot of people move back into homes that were badly fractured, that yeah. could collapse if there was another earthquake sure. on, their, on tenants. Um, a, lot of, a lot of people... Um, more than 200,000 people have moved into informal settlements that were actually initially considered camps for internally displaced people. But then due to, for political reasons, the IOM stopped counting the people living yeah. in those settlements as being internally displaced, which is just ridiculous. So one from one day to the next... Um, the uh, uh, an informal settlement of 50,000 where there were 50,000 people sure. living suddenly stopped being um, counted as internally displaced. But the social economic conditions did not did not change at all. Yeah. yeah. And now in that, so there are a number of, inf- I mean, basically Haiti's largest, what is considered Haiti's largest slum now, um, did not exist before the earthquake. Um, this is a brand new informal settlement in which conditions were considered so similar to a camp that they were initially counted as a camp population. Um, and there are many of these informal settlements. So when I was doing my the reporting for this intercept um, type investigation story, I was spending a lot of time in these informal settlements, yeah, where people were actually telling me the conditions, because a lot of these people had been living in camps, and they were talking about how conditions were actually worse for them in in these new informal settlements than they were in the camps, where at least they were centrally located. So there were more business opportunities. Sure. There were more, they also had access, they had better access to drinking water, which is a huge issue given that um, cholera has been a, a major problem in Haiti, has killed about 9,000 people from the statistics. We know it could actually be a much higher number than that, but that is... Um, yeah, and many, many, many people have been sickened or and sickened by cholera. Nine thousand is like the number of people who have died from cholera, and this was a disease that was introduced to Haiti by the United Nations, which has been, um, yeah, which has which leading international epidemiologists have have 
have identified um, negligence well, this, on the part of the United Nations and the UN as the apologize for this. Yeah, as yeah. the source of the There's peacekeeping quote unquote troops. Exactly, yeah. which yeah. were initially deployed to Haiti right yeah. after um, a coup d'état that the Canadian government supported in, in 2004. So a force that is regarded by a lot of Haitians as um, an occup- a military occupation. Um, yeah. So, so this is so the so conditions in in these informal settlements yeah. are really bad by um, by. Yeah, a couple of years after the cholera, after the after the cholera outbreak, which broke out just like eight months after the earthquake, yeah. um, these new informal settlements were actually considered the. Um, this was the community with the highest rate of cholera infection mm-hmm. in the entire world. So uh, and these cholera are, hadn't existed in Haiti before two thousand and four. There were no reports of it having existed yeah, in yeah, Haiti before yeah. before um, the aftermath of the UN um, the UN dumping basically feces from cholera infected a UN contractor dumping feces from a cholera infected um, UN peacekeeping base into a principal Haitian waterway. Yeah. So so cholera is one and and water deadly waterborne diseases are one issue that is a major a major I mean that remains a major problem um, throughout Haiti mm-hmm. because despite all of the billions of dollars that were pledged for um, Haiti's recovery after the earthquake, the country still does not have a functioning basic sanitation system. Um, and the history of this can also, um, yeah, can also be, I mean, be traced back to some of the past failures of international aid in Haiti, um, decisions to block loans that could have, that were actually supposed to be used for these purposes um, for political reasons, because Haitians had elected a government um, that was not seen in a positive light by countries like the U.S. and 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 Canada. That was the government of the Aristide. Of Jean Bertrand Aristide, yeah. The so Lavalas party. The Lavalas party, exactly. Yeah. So, so the so the conditions for Haitians, and especially Haitians who lived in camps, mm-hmm. remain really dire. And yeah. what I was hearing from talking to people who were, had moved to these informal settlements that are now home to well over 200,000 people who wow. did not live in that area before the earthquake, um, were that things were actually better for them in the camps. So this is... Um, there, And then the other thing to consider is also that a lot of people were driven out of camps through forced evictions. Um, According to the IOM itself, which I also found was involved in practices that were in many ways indistinguishable from forced evictions itself, using um, police to drive people um, who were unwilling to leave the camp through um, the programs that that it and other um, other organizations administered as part Mm -hmm. of their strategy of closing camps, which basically offered um, those who were deemed eligible from camps that were targeted through these programs, it, they were offered um, one year of subsidized rent, but in a context in which the price of rent has gone through the roof. So after the one year ended, their own evaluations, the evaluators hired by the organizations that were administering the programs, assessed that 60% of people were not going to be able to afford to pay their rent after the end of the one year, the one year program. Um, 
yeah, that was a report that they didn't initially want to release in any way. Um, but this was what their own evaluators found. They also raised some serious questions in a subsequent evaluation about the impact that the programs themselves had had on the cost of rent sure. in Port-au-Prince, which was an issue that a lot of the um, former camp residents that I spoke to also raised because they they saw a direct link between the kinds of prices that landlords were charging yeah. and the fact that there were these international organizations that had stepped in with a program that ultimately was just giving money to the landlords. So the people who were displaced, they could keep, if there was any extra money after the rent was paid, then they would get to keep that money, but that the landlords sort of made sure that they captured the full amount of these of these grants is what people told me. And I think that it's also important to consider that the situation of renters in Haiti is is um, was really dire before the earthquake. People had to pay their rent in like either six month or one year in advance installments. So basically, these people, I mean, and Haiti is a country where for a long time people have lived on less than $2 a day, that they then have to pay their rent a year in advance, which is, I mean, what like most renters here would not be able to afford to pay their, year, their rent a year or six months yeah. in advance. Yeah. And so when the earthquake struck in 2010, people lost not only the home that they lived in and a lot of their possessions, but they also lost like a huge amount of capital that yeah. here would be likely enough for some sort of a down payment in that context. If you can save up enough rent for a whole year, I mean, if you can do, you know, it's like, sure. you know, and you're, and you have multiple adults who are, who are, who are often contributing to the rent of a, of a, of a, of a particular apartment. Like these are like sums that renters here, um, would have a very hard time coming up with, right? The entire year's rent in advance. And so people, so people were, really, were really dispossessed in the earthquake, especially renters. And then when the program instituted by organizations called like the International Organization for Migration, because they saw this as the most expedient and quick solution to the problem of people in camps because that's how they saw it. They didn't see it from the perspective of the people living in camps where, yeah. you know, the high cost of rent was part of the problem. So from their perspective, the solution to close camps ended up being, well, let's give the landlords what we estimate that um, the cost of, uh, of a home for a family would be for a year. And we'll just pay that to them right straight up front. Um, and that is how... That is how the well, camps... It's a market-based solution. Entirely yeah, market-based yeah. solution with not no... Not a social solution. Not a social solution yeah, and, no, yeah. and no effort to, to try to... Or at least no, nothing, yeah, nothing was done to try to control the price of rent wow. while this was being done. So people have been... Yeah, so people actually felt like they were being screwed over by the program. But what they told people that I talked to about mm -hmm. it, they were like, but we couldn't say no... Because, yeah. like, what other option do we have, right? And so, but there were some people who resisted. Um, and I talked to some of the some of the people that I interviewed for the intercept for the intercept um, type investigations article had been in a camp where people had actually said, "No, this is like a bullshit solution, and we want 
you know, they had been, they had wanted something else. The Haitian a representative from the Haitian government had visited and talked about, you know, these promised, these promises to rebuild. And they were like waiting for houses to be built for them, right? Because yeah. they had heard the government say they're going to build houses. A lot of international organizations had also talked about um, rebuilding and rebuilding and building houses. Um, donor governments had wow. certainly talked about this. And so people, so there were some people who were, who were hanging on, you know, trying to, you know, pushing for something better than this, than this solution that most people that I talked to who lived in camp saw as extremely limited um, and not as a solution. Nobody described it as a, as a solution it, at got all. Got and um, from the perspective of the people living in camps, this was never, this was never a solution. But, and even given these limitations, mm-hmm. it's also, however, important to note that these programs, these, mm-hmm. we can say, these, like, really limited programs that didn't do very much besides um, increase the price of rent and give people a little break for a year, they were responsible for the closure of less than 20% of um of the, they were responsible for less than 20% of people who left right. camps. Yeah, yeah. And the IOM actually did its own report, um, like an initial report that was based on talking to people who, who had left camps in the first year after the earthquake. And they found that most people who left in the first year had left as a result of forced evictions. So people were driven out of camps, um, by, often by landlords who were hiring thugs, Sometimes arson was used. Um, people would wow. go in with weapons. Wow. Um, so wow. this is how a lot of people were driven out of camps. And this is, and a lot of, and I talked to people who had then settled in these informal settlements are still living under tarps, the same tarps <laughs> under which they were living in the camp. Um, and they had, re- and they received nothing at all. Wow. They were just, they were just, they were, they were driven out um, by thugs who often had um, the support of the local mayor's office. So uh, forced evictions by security, also informal security forces, I can imagine, or sort of paramilitary-style forces and police, as well as people's health collapsing in the context of displacement camps in Haiti, has been marked as progress by a lot of international organizations, um, well, particularly projected as progress by um, the International Organization on Migration of the United Nations by trying to like point at the idea that the number of people displaced in Haiti is decreasing. But obviously these um, issues haven't been resolved. Um, so you've, I'm with Isabel McDonald who wrote a text for The Intercept called Seeking to Deport Haitians, the Trump administration is counting deaths in displacement camps as progress as we're talking about. So I guess just finally, I just wanted to ask you, thank you so much for all this background. Um, why was it really important for you to take the time to work on this piece? It is an investigative piece. I, mean, I know that it involved discussing these issues, not just with researchers or or people working for international organizations on the ground in Haiti, but you also, as you've mentioned, spoke with people affected. So how was working on this piece and why was it important for you to take the time to to put this out there? Well, I think it's important for us. I mean, I think it's important to know that these statistics that a lot of organizations, including the Trump administration, but also like 
a lot of other organizations, the International Organization for Migration, the Canadian government, um, have used to claim that there has been progress in Haiti since the earthquake are based on this extremely, extremely, it's almost difficult to know what word to describe for it, but it's a system in which they are counting people who die in camps as a measure of progress. People who are forcibly evicted from camps, um, sometimes with the use of arson by private landlords, sometimes by thugs with guns. These are also part of the numbers that we're hearing about as progress in Haiti, right? So there are all these organizations, and this has been a key part of how the Trump administration has been trying to um, move forward with its plans sure. to deport 59,000 Haitians living in the States who have, who have, have a protected immigration status. Um, these statistics showing that, okay, there are 96% fewer Haitians living in camps now um, are based on this way of calculating populations in which they count people who die, who are violently evicted, or who end up in new camp-like settings um, in which conditions are by some counts worse than they were in camps. Yeah. They count all of that as part of the progress. So we need to be very skeptical of these these claims um, that are made, of these statistics, which yeah. I'm sure we're going to see crop up again around the 10-year anniversary of the earthquake of January 12, 2010, which is um, coming up quite soon. So I would, I would just emphasize the need for extreme caution with these statistics, because the reality on the ground in Haiti is... Yeah. Very different. Got People it. who were actually displaced by the earthquake are living in conditions, many are living in conditions that are in some ways worse than they were even in the camps. Um, and yeah, the, the narrative of progress that has been constructed by these governments, by these international organizations, it is ignoring the actual experiences of people who were who were who were dispossessed of their homes who were um by by the earthquake but also by what has happened with rent and the way that the international community has responded to the crisis of displacement in Haiti that was initially caused by the earthquake but that has been exacerbated by the fact that housing hasn't been rebuilt um, and that the solution, so-called solution that has been offered has, has actually, by in the, in the view of, of um, a lot of people, a lot of displaced Haitians themselves, and also um, the evaluators who were hired to evaluate the programs that were administered to close the camps, that this also may have been a contributing factor to the increasing cost of rent in cities like Port-au-Prince that has resulted in a lot of people having to leave the city, go into these new informal settlements where hundreds of thousands of Haitians are now, are now living um, without basic services. Wow. Isabel, thanks for speaking with us uh, today. You're very welcome. Yeah. Um, you can check out the article uh, that Isabel is talking about on theintercept.com, and it's called uh, Seeking to Deport Haitians. The Trump administration is counting deaths in displacement camps as progress.